Hello, greetings. Thank you for your interest in spiritual matters and for spend, giving us the gift of spending time together as we continue to explore what God has made known in Christ and in Scripture. My name is Ethan. I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We are a non-denominational ch uh, church of disciples making disciples in Los Angeles. We'd love to hear your thoughts about our conversation today. Please let us know in the comments. And if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. Let us consider what Peter wrote to the Christians of Asia Minor in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God, by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the Spirit. In it he went and preached to the spirits in prison, after they were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed. In the ark a few, that is, eight souls, were delivered through water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Peter has been writing to the Christians of Asia Minor to encourage them in their faith while they go through difficulties. In the first chapter, in the beginning of the second chapter, this great encouragement is based in the hope of resurrection and salvation, the value of salvation, and why it's so important to be holy, to love, to be sustained by God's message, and how Christians are a temple as the spiritual Israel. And in chapter 2, and until this point, really, the, the exhortations have been about honorable conduct before all people, to suffer for doing right, as Christ has set forth an example, and how that's been applied to Christian slaves, wives, husbands, and all Christians. Then, uh, in chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, the Christians should bless when they've been reviled, they should be zealous for good, that they should defend their hope with gentleness and love. And then in verse 17, that it is better to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. And this has been part of his theme from before, and it's going to be his theme through the core of the letter uh, in this whole section until we get through chapter 4. And so when he says, because Christ also suffered once for sins, he's going back to that idea of suffering for doing good if God wills it, than for doing evil, and going back to Christ, uh, which is what he did in chapter 2, talking to the Christian slaves, and really to all Christians, about what it looks like to serve Christ, to do good, uh, and to suffer for it, uh, and better that than to suffer doing evil, and that Gentiles aren't really being given to blaspheme any reason for such things, and that they are using their freedom as God's people not to cover up evil, but instead to obey God and to do his purposes. And so this is not a new idea here in, in 1 Peter, but he's again reinforcing this connection, as Jesus suffered, so you will suffer. Jesus suffered once for sins. Uh, again, that focus on the once will be a major aspect what the Hebrews author is establishing in Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. And it was the just one for the unjust people. And this is, again, evoking... Isaiah 53, which is exactly what Peter was evoking in chapter 2, verses uh, 18 through 25. And it's to bring us to God, to reconcile us for God. We see this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. Of course, this is part of God's ultimate purpose in John 17. 
uh, in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 5 of Romans as well. He was put to death in the flesh, but is made alive in the spirit. And it would be very uh, easy to try to take that uh, death in the flesh, alive in the spirit, to be a kind of a contrast between the physical and the spiritual. But we're better to read it in terms of what Paul is contrasting in 1 Corinthians 15 about the psychical versus pneumatical uh, way of living. That, uh, yes, his corporeal body did die, uh, but it was raised from the dead, and it's now his uh, resurrection body that continues. And so that's what the contrast is being made there. And so this very, very powerful theme here. And then it leads us into one of the most controversial passages in the book, in the whole New Testament. It's very hard to understand. There's more questions than answers about what's going on. It seems like, well, how is it hard to understand? Okay, uh, Jesus went in the spiritual body, preached to spirits in prison. Those were disobedient in the days of Noah when God was being patient and waiting while the ark was being constructed. Well, the reason it's difficult is not that we can't understand the words coming out of Peter's mouth or pen here, as much as the background information and what the Christians of Asia Minor no, no doubt understood about what he was saying that we just don't have access to anymore. And there's been three general possibilities of what's being seen here. There is the Dickensis view, uh, because the idea of descent, the idea, well, Jesus descended into Hades. This is something they see in the Apostles' Creed uh, as part of an idea called the harrowing of hell, uh, a way of trying to understand and explain that in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus went down and rescued all the souls of the righteous before him uh, from the clutches of Hades to be with him. And that's a story that is not attested to explicitly in Scripture. It's something that might certainly have happened. Uh, we can't say it did or did not based on anything in Scripture. Um, and this is the closest passage that you would get to it. And so it's understandable why people would attach it to this passage uh, in light of everything. There's a more of a Noahide view uh, where Jesus is seen as a pre-incarnate word that inspired Noah to preach righteousness. You're trying to find some kind of explicit thing to hang on uh, when it comes to preaching to the spirits in prison. Uh, you can understand why that would be, and this is something Augustine was hold, holding on to. And there's, then there's the Enochic view, which is Jesus proclaiming righteousness to the imprisoned and spiritual beings that are described in great detail in First Enoch verses, uh, chapters 1 through 11 in light of uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And... Uh, while we have confidence that the Christians of Asia Minor had sufficient background to understand it, we might uh, struggle a little bit with it. Uh, but Peter is talking about the time of the flood. And the most likely out of these is probably the Enochic view, with the, the way that we know that Peter and Second Peter uh, is going to make reference to uh, things in Enoch. And the idea that the spirits in prison, uh, that, that the idea of the spirits in prison, that these spirits are likely the angelic beings that were... Uh, committing that evil in that in that concept, uh, the idea that it's the undead, uh, it's just dead. Excuse me, uh, people uh, is very hard to sustain based on the use of the of the of the language and the terms being used here. Um, and so again, it's a very difficult verse, difficult concept, um, and it would make the most sense with all the various challenges and going on to this to see it uh, as some kind of proclamation in this way. Why? is a very difficult thing, but we can talk about a little bit of that in a moment. 
But we have then, yes, the idea of uh, the story of the flood, that God was patient during it, indicated in Genesis 6, 5 through 22, that it took a long time between when God saw this evil and when he did something about it, and that uh, the ark on the water allowed eight people, Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Jabeth, and their wives, to be saved uh, or delivered here through the water. And that this is being seen as the antitupos uh, here, uh, which is being uh, prefiguring in the NET, but seeing as corresponding to this or the like figure. But we talk about it as an antitype. It is the opposite or parallel type. And it's not necessarily a, a symbol, uh, as many want to argue, because there's a lot of discomfort among many with the, uh, the idea that baptism now saves you, as Peter has made explicit here. But it makes sense when you think about it as the antitype. Because what's going on in the days of the flood? Well, those who were in the water drowned and died, and those who were on top of the water and dry were saved, right? And now, in the antitype, those who are dry are going to be perished, but those who have been immersed in the water are the ones who are going to be saved. You definitely can see it's a type, antitype type situation. And Peter here uh, wants to make it very clear that it's not just kind of removing dirt here. Uh, instead, it's an epirotema for a good conscience. Uh, we see a, appeal in English Standard, answer in the King James. The word has the idea of inquiry. Um, what's going on there? An inquiry uh, of, a, of a good conscience to God. Uh, the idea of the a pledge here is getting to the core concept here. It's a pledge. It's a commitment uh, to God through the resurrection of Jesus for that good conscience. That You're not just going to keep going on and persisting in sin. Nevertheless, there's a lot of things that we can learn here. Uh, that baptism is not about getting the flesh clean as much as an appeal to God for that cleansing, for that standing, and a recognition that you need to keep that standing. Uh, and it's made through the resurrection. To die to sin to be raised, to walk in newness of life. Uh, something that Paul will make manifest in Romans 6. And if you look at Romans 6 and the talk of baptism there, it's serving a very similar purpose. That when Paul's talking about baptism, it's not about uh, looking back to that event as much as that is the event that shows that we do not continue in sin for grace to abound, that we have died to sin, not to walk in it, but instead to walk as new creatures in, in, in a spiritual regeneration and resurrection. And that's also what's going on here with what P Peter is talking about. And it's through that resurrection of Jesus and that he is now uh, in heaven, and at the right hand of God with these angels and powers that are subject to him. A demonstration of his authority and the fact that he uh, continues to rule in his kingdom. Now what's going on here with verses 19 through 22? It, and it's going to be difficult. You can kind of read, you know, being put, made alive in the spirit, you know, put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, verse 18. So since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude, uh, because the one who has suffered in the flesh is finished with sin and, and continuing on. You could entirely just delete this uh, section here, verses 19 through 22. And in fact, you would see a much more consistency in the context. Um, and so Peter maybe is meditating on what happens to Jesus between this death and resurrection, makes an aside about his proclamation, Noah's family and baptism. Uh, we have seen that there are Noah-like flood traditions in Asia Minor. And Peter might be making an allusion of the, to these uh, to encourage the Christians to endure and to entrust themselves to God and God's patience. Uh, but it, it is a complicated thing uh, to look at this passage. So what are we supposed to take away from it? 
Well, Peter is presenting another description of the nature and purposes of Jesus' death. That there is our unrighteousness that has uh, been contrasted with Jesus' righteousness. That his death allows us to be reconciled to God. That, yeah, he was uh, put to death in the flesh, but he's made alive in the spirit. That the physical body in the, in the cyclical form that we have today died, and it was transformed in the pneumatical form, uh, using Paul's terms for this, uh, to endure forevermore. And that it's the ultimate pattern. And it's not just the, an end, it's a beginning. It's not just, yes, you, you suffer even to the point of death, but that you will be raised and exalted. Again, there's that, that, the continuation of that. And that's, that's the encouragement, that following the path of Christ can lead to what Christ now enjoys. And that's been laid out here in the grandest scheme. And that's really what's going on in this passage. It's about Jesus' suffering and exaltation as a model for Christians and as an encouragement for Christians. And we should not allow all of the various questions, as valid as many of those questions are, to distract us from that core concept so that we can take the appropriate encouragement from this passage. Then we have uh, the importance of understanding uh, baptism from what Peter has to say in 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, he says that baptism now saves you. And there's a lot of people who want to kind of argue with that uh, and don't necessarily like the way that he's put it there. Now, very clear, we need to be very, very, very clear about this, that Peter is not trying to make this elaborate argument about the salvation regarding baptism. Uh, baptism is not, he's, he's bringing it up because of his conversation about Noah, but again, the fact that he brings it up and is able to associate it so much uh, definitely means it's an appropriate conclusion and application based on his exhortation. The understanding of the importance of baptism was far more normative for Peter than it has been since the Protestant diminution of baptism. And there's a lot of things about baptism that Peter helps to understand here, uh, that it does save, that it has an important part in the way that we are reconciled back to God, that it's not a bath for the removal of dirt. It's also hard to see how you would even think of it as a way of removing dirt if it were a sprinkling or even a pouring. But as an immersion, you know, a lot of times we immerse our bodies in order to remove dirt. Very important to keep in mind that baptism has become in English a, an ecclesiastical or religious word. Uh, it is a term that we use to talk about a Christian ritual. That is the way the word is used in English. And, and people may fight and want to protest about that, but it, it, you know, don't fight the lexicographers about it, because all they're doing is trying to describe the way it's used in English. The Greek baptizo is not so narrowly defined. It is not simply talking about uh, a religious ritual. People could baptize their clothing, themselves, Anything that you would dip or immerse is uh, being used under the concept of baptizo. So in that domain, you can understand why it has to be made clear that this is not a immersion for taking the dirt off the flesh. Instead, there's something else going on. And, of course, what that means is, is that if the baptism here is not about the removal of dirt from the flesh, if somebody were to just get a baptism in which they were removing dirt from the flesh, it's not exactly what Peter's talking about here. And it shows us that, yes, that just because someone uh, claims that they went through a ritual that was called baptism doesn't mean that it was actually uh, what God would recognize as a baptism. And that the meaning of baptism and its value is informed by its purpose. 
And so it's important for us to be doing it for the appropriate reasons, to turn back to God, to um, seek the remission of our sins in Jesus. And also, it's very important that, yes, baptism saves, but it's not like baptism saves on its own. That it is a baptism saves as the pledge of a good conscience through the resurrection. That the resurrection is still the core fundamental thing. Uh, getting immersed in the name of Jesus doesn't mean a whole lot if the name of Jesus doesn't mean a whole lot. And the name of Jesus means something because he died and was raised in power, and that every knee is going to bow at that name. And so the resurrection is still the animating thing. Just because we say baptism is necessary for salvation does not mean that baptism is the only important thing, the only thing necessary for salvation, or somehow the trump card of, of salvation. Not at all what uh, Peter or Paul or any of the apostles ever had in mind. Um, we should not say, well, baptism alone saves any more than we should say faith alone, repentance alone, the resurrection alone. Uh, the impetus and emphasis trying to make everything about exclusivity is just completely contrary to the spirit of what's going on in the scriptures. People need to believe, they need to confess, they need to repent, they need to be baptized, they need to be faithful. All these things are needs. Uh, and, and trying to emphasize one over the other is just not going to do us much good. So there's a lot of important things going on here in 1 Peter 3, 18-22. That Jesus suffered once for sin, that as Noah and the family were saved on the ark, we are saved through baptism, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Lord. And that's why it's so important for us to serve Jesus the risen Lord, to be willing to suffer for him, that we can share in the exaltation that will be given to all of those uh, who are in Christ and who uh, will be glorified by God on the final day. What comes to mind when you think of First Peter 3, 18 through 22. What do you think about what's going on there with Jesus and preaching to those spirits in prison? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Let us know and continue our conversation. Subscribe to us where you found us. Let us go to God in prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. We're so thankful for all the blessings that you've given us, the blessings of life and uh, everything that we have in our comes from you, for, especially for Jesus, Father, and the fact that we can have salvation in his name, that he was just and righteous and died on behalf of those of us who are unrighteous, that we could be reconciled back to you, that we can find salvation in him, and that you will sustain and strengthen us through all that we are to endure, and that we can share with him in the resurrection of life on his return. At this time, we will pray that you provide us the wisdom and strength and boldness to be able to stand firm and to suffer for doing good, if that's what we're called upon to do, rather than for evil, and to faithfully bear witness to Jesus and to follow his pattern and example that we can share an eternal life in him. Please heal those who are ill, comfort, strengthen, sustain those in distress, grief, and pain, preserve life where it is in danger. And we, we pray that for all people, especially those in authority, that we can live in tranquility and peace and that all may come to knowledge your truth and be saved. And we look forward to that day of resurrection that we can share in that life in the glorified body for all eternity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Again, so thankful that you've joined us. Uh, if we can be of any further service, please reach out to us at adventuretochrist.org. And may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.